here I am with uh, the MLA for Skeena, Ellis Ross. Ellis, it's an honor to talk to you today. Thanks so much for making the time. I know it's a day off for you, so I appreciate it. Good to be here. Well, let's jump right in. For anyone who's not familiar with who you are and how you spend your time, can you give us the, the 30,000 foot view? Who is Ellis Ross and what do you do? Uh, basically, I'm just a, an Aboriginal living on reserve in Kitimat Village, BC, uh, born and raised. And I was elected to council in 2003 to 2011, at which point I got elected to be chief councillor for two years. And then I got in by acclamation for another four years. Uh, I then resigned as chief councillor to run as an MLA to see if I could kind of uh, get LNG over the, the finish line. And basically uh, my background has always been about uh, building a strong economy for the, the betterment of people, communities. And uh, yeah, that's me. That's you. And um, you know, you've been quite recognized for your public service, including receiving the Order of British Columbia and the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Award. Um, not, not small feats, so congratulations. And I guess an interesting place to start right now, therefore, Ellis, given your background, would be what's front and center for you? And I'm asking, what's, what's troubling you in the way that British Columbia or Canada has positioned ourselves right now for the years moving forward? Wow, that's a loaded question. Well, I, I find many similarities in terms of what I was doing back in 2004 to 2017 in terms of trying to uh, build a better future for my people, try to build a better future for my region. Uh, because we were dealing with... Uh, two major LNG projects. We were dealing with forestry issues, uh, mining issues. And so by the time in 2017, I resigned as chief counselor, I felt that we were on a good enough path where my First Nation community was fully independent. They had enough revenues, they had acquired enough land, they had all the job opportunities they could handle, they got all the training opportunities. Uh, the council itself was independent because they had their own revenues. And the people, more importantly, were independent because they had really good paying jobs. Fast forward to today, I find BC in the same position as what my impoverished First Nation was in back in 2003. Because if, if you take a look around, there's no real economic development happening. There's no resource development happening other than what was put in place uh, from 2004 to 2017. And you, 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 that's compounded now with the energy crisis. And it, to me, it highlights, uh, number one, Germany and Europe made huge mistakes in terms of their, their energy issues. And they fully realized how dependent they were on a regime like Russia or LNG and coal. While BC is in the same spot. You're, you're ignoring uh, mining, forestry, you're ignoring liquid natural gas for international and domestic purposes. You're ignoring the idea that people still need gasoline and diesel to get around and for essential services. You're ignoring all that. And so if we're not careful, uh, you're going to get to a stage of dependence, much like my band was back in 2004, and people of BC are going to pay for it dearly, like what the citizens of Germany are actually uh, currently facing right now, and, and Austria for that matter. So I see very similar. Uh, issues facing us as British Columbians here. And so my, my prerogative is that 
we as British Columbians should be fighting for energy independence, uh, not only to you know make a quality of life better, but also to fight back on inflation. So I want to I want to jump into that, and maybe let's let's start with Europe as an example, because you're right, we're watching this unfold in real time, right? The the issues of, of short sighted decisions when it comes to energy policy. You know, we look at the hot war that's occurring in Europe, and I, I from an energy standpoint, I ask the question like, who's going to win? who's going to win as a consequence of this scenario? And you can say, yes, the coal industry is going to win, right? Uh, Putin right now is winning. I don't think Russians are winning, but but Putin as a dictator is winning. Um, safe to say China and India now buying discounted oil and gas, they're winning, right? So who loses in that scenario? Well, absolutely Europe, uh, for the reasons you discussed. It's, it's one thing to say we're going to wean ourselves off Russian ener energy, oil and gas. When winter rolls around, in October, how, how's that actually going to occur, right? When it gets cold and people need to heat their homes, there's no alternative right now. And so it's lip service, right? There's no substance to this. Is that correct? Without a doubt. And the thing about it, I try to explain to people, the, the governments of, of Germany and Austria uh, made decisions based on rhetoric. Uh, it was ideology. It wasn't based on reality. But the one thing people should remember Governments don't pay the price for bad decisions. It's us, us that pay the energy bills. 100%. Ours, right? Fill up our heating our homes, buying groceries. Government never pays the price for anything. And if anything, what's going to happen is as inflation increases, whether it be taxes or the energy crisis that's, that's affecting us right now, government's going to have to address inflation as well for their own purposes. So they're going to have to raise rates, raise taxes, I mean, government always comes out on top on any of these issues. So uh, I just believe that uh, what we should be doing as a province, it should be doing what we did back in Skeena back in 2004. We should develop a strong economy so that uh, wages increase, what we've seen here in Kitimatan Terrace, but also government has revenues other than uh, taxes or some types of uh, rates for, for utilities and whatnot. I mean, it just makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. I'm with you. So let's. What's the low-hanging fruit, Ellis? What's available when you say we should do what what occurred in Skeena in 2004 and build a local strong economy? What's the low-hanging fruit? Like, what's what's accessible right now that we could begin? Well, that's a great question because for the short term, we don't have any low-hanging fruit. I mean, Site C right now being built in BC, it's gone way over budget, uh, and who and it's not even gonna be enough. To, to address the electricity needs if BC by some miracle goes 100% electricity. But let's be real, we can't. The infrastructure uh, for the network of hydro lines all across BC is not there. It's going to cost a lot of money to, to upgrade that. Mm. Infrastructure for our neighborhoods, if everybody got an electric car, it's not there. It would have to be replaced. Uh, the infrastructure in our houses to, to actually accept uh, the, you know, the charging of batteries it's not there so we got to be realistic about it so it's i think the the low-hanging fruit aren't there but we should be looking at something that first nations have been asking about for the last 20 years a domestic energy policy that addresses inflation on behalf of citizens it, it just boggles my mind that we are so dependent on washington state and alberta for two-thirds of our gasoline and diesel uh, supply and we, we saw that when uh, the Coquihalla Highway got washed out 
Mm. The mainland were rationed at 30 liters, 30 liters per person a visit. And Vancouver Island, if, if it ever came down to a crunch, Vancouver Island only has enough supply for gas and diesel for three days. That's all they have. And in, in that situation, if, if that ever becomes extreme for Lower Mainland or BC or Vancouver Island, the first thing that happens in terms of rationing is there's a supply set aside for policemen, ambulances, hospitals. So that means even less supply for us as citizens. Mm -hmm. So domestic energy supply to me means gas and diesel in, in, in greater supply for British Columbians as well as uh, working out some strategy for exporting this for revenues for British Columbians for our highways or hospitals. It's just, I, I don't get why, as well as the long-term and medium-term goal should be, is actually getting uh, LNG, natural gas, to be more of an energy uh, source in British Columbia, whether you're talking about vehicles or home heating, because it's energy is the foundation of everything that we take for granted in our society today. And I don't understand why we're not having that conversation in light of what's happening in Europe. Well, you, you, you say you don't understand, but you must have some assumptions or, or, or I suppose, speculation. Like what were the motives for these decisions? Why, why do we find ourselves in this scenario? We didn't have to, right? Why are we so reliant on Washington state and Alberta? And we don't have to be, right? Why are, why? Why have we hamstrung ourselves? Like, what, what is, I guess, where was the breakdown in decision making and communication to the public about why things need to be right or how they could be versus how they are? Well, I, from 2004 to 2017, I was in a bit of a bubble because I was so focused on, on making sure that our region was basically autonomous in terms of an economy. Mm -hmm. And so, but there was a lot of opposition I knew to, to the export of uh, LNG, liquid natural gas. And so when I came out of that bubble and I started to work in the BC legislature, I started to look all across BC and Canada and saw that there this this ideology, this narrative out there that somehow we don't need gas and oil. Whether we're talking about uh, the pharmaceutical products that are made from gas and oil, the toothbrushes, the, the, the plastics that go into cars, and we definitely don't need it as a fuel source. And so I, I think the BC public bought into the idea that, yes, we can survive on wind and solar. And let's face it, as government, government is really made up of uh, uh, the leadership of politicians, and all they're really after is votes. Yeah. So that ideology was working, you know, they kept promising, you know, more solar, more more wind power, but without telling the BC public, hey, by the way, this is going to be a very uh, expensive proposition and we can't pay for it. So therefore, you, the citizen, would have to pay for it. But I think now we see the example of what happens in, when you take that ideology too far at the government level. Like, I don't blame these politicians for doing what they did because they were doing it for politics. They did it for votes. But once you get into government, that is a more serious initiative. As government leaders in places like Germany and Austria, surely you could see with all those technical reports and experts, surely you could see that depending entirely on wind and solar was not a good idea for the, just, just for the sake of your citizens. And I think that's where, I think that's where British Columbians actually are going too far in terms of believing that. 
And so that, that's why I think we find ourselves in this situation where we've got to ration 30 liters of gasoline or diesel per, per person. Yes. And I, I understand as well. Like I, I, I get that motive, right? You're going to protect your employment, right? Like you're, you're a politician, you're going to collect votes by any means, unfortunately, by any means necessary, right? And that, if that means selling a dream to the public about the future we could have if we make these adjustments and we could lead the world in terms of renewable energy and have this green future. And I want that too. I have three kids. Like I, I have a special relationship with wild places. I've been really fortunate in that regard to have spent a lot of time in remote areas. So I know what we stand to lose and I can appreciate that. However, there's also reality. And what's it going to take, Ellis, from your standpoint for for the general public to accept that there's always going to be a bit of a compromise, right? And we can, we can, we can do both. It doesn't have to be, we don't have to be all in on one or the other, right? There's, there's a middle ground that serves our best interests, improves our quality of life, still, you know, protects sensitive environments and habitats and can set an example for the world. You know, what's it going to take for that concession or compromise to materialize in the minds of everyday Canadians? What do you think? I think it's, uh, we, we shouldn't actually go through what Germany did. We should look at what Germany's going through and not the government. I mean, they're, they're talking about building a LNG terminal within two years to accept LNG from a different sources other than Russia. We don't have to live that example. But th th there should be a way for, for British Columbia to understand that actually, number one, British Columbia, you are not you are not responsible for all the global issues that you, you're, you're looking at across the world. You are not. In terms of uh, emissions, you're probably 10th or 11th. You're way down the list. You hardly even register in terms of global emissions as compared to say, European Union, uh, United States, India, China. You don't register, but your politicians want you to believe that you as a British Columbian are responsible for all of it. Therefore you should suffer the most in terms of paying through the nose for energy costs. Uh, and also, I, I think that people should really equate your quality of life, whether you're talking about transportation, uh, medicine, food, that, that, that comes uh, with a certain level of investment. And that does mean the foundation of energy is actually supplying you with that quality of life. If you truly want to, to walk away from that, you're really walking away from the quality of life. And really what you're saying is to your kids, hey, your life, you, the cost of living is going to go, go through the roof. And by the way, you're not going to have the same types of uh, luxuries that I had when I was growing up. And you're just going to have to sacrifice. I don't, I don't think that's right, especially if it's based on a false narrative. I really think you hit a nail on the head there when you said, British Columbians need to know that they are not responsible for global emissions to the effect they may have been sold that they are, right? And that's a trend that and all my viewers know, I'm not a fan of our federal leadership right now. And I feel like we're getting a lot of culture wars that aren't Canadian imported into the country. And I, I don't understand why there's a slew, um, but that's, that's one, right? And so communicating that, that if our impact is so light, how can we actually create that much of a difference? Do we need to, do we need to carry that burden? So what, what, do, what do British Columbians need to hear then, Ellis? Right? Because I, I, I love that message. We need to 
the public of BC needs to understand that they're not responsible for the global emissions to the, to the effect they've been sold that they are, right? And so what, what would you say to my audience of British Columbians right now to, to strengthen that narrative? Well, you know, I, I've been talking about this for the last three or four years when I realized uh, what we're talking about here is really politics and ideology. And what I've been saying, whether you're talking about First Nations issues, whether you're talking about energy, whether you're talking about emissions, British Columbians, Canadians, Stop beating yourselves up. Stop doing it. Stop this self-hating exercise that's actually being propagated by external sources. I mean, this is a great country. We're not perfect, but every time that I've noticed that uh, we we come up against an issue, and I've been doing I've been doing this for eighteen years now. Every time I've seen a, a, an issue that came up that we had to resolve, the one thing I noticed that was Canadians and British Columbians. We're looking for that solution. We're not happy just sitting there with a sad situation being allowed to fester. We're, we're trying to address it. Whereas you look at other places around the world, they're just providing lip service. So stop beating yourselves up, Canadians, and stop this self-hating. Because ultimately, the only people that are going to pay the price for this self-hating exercise is you, your kids, and your grandkids. That's who's going to pay. And we're already seeing it right now. The energy costs are going through the roof here. Uh, I fueled up last night in Kitimat, and I think I was paying $2.22 a liter for gas. And it's, it's going to keep going up. At some point, uh, this is why I say there's a difference between politics and governments. Politics is a necessary evil. You got to do it to get votes. But once you get into government, you really should be looking out for the people that you're responsible for. And that includes inflation. So then talk to me about where is the place and where can environmental activists add value to the conversation? You know, I, I'm curious and I look at a lot of the protests we've had in BC over the last couple of years and, and how many are fueled by protesters who were essentially imported from an urban area far away from where the protest is occurring and often actually getting in the way of what the locals are looking to accomplish. And so, but that's not to say that there's no place for environmental activism. There absolutely is. Um, talk to me about that. What do you, what do you see, Ellis? Well, I like the environmental activism that's proactive. I like that. I like the, the person that's truly interested in not only addressing some of the environmental issues, but also understanding it, understanding the basic principles behind it and, and asking the tough questions. I really appreciate that. I don't appreciate, you know, the protests blocking highways, you know, and causing frustration, maybe even harm to themselves and other people based on a false narrative. I, I don't appreciate that. In fact, if anything, uh, long before I became a, a elected leader for my people, our people were fighting for environmental standards for the better part of 30 years before I came along. And it's on the record. They were trying to get industry in our, our region to actually clean up their act long before environmentalism was even a thing. And so I, the reason I know this is because I had to go to court against a, a company here in Kitimat and I had to review all the official correspondence between my band 
and the governments for the last 30 years. And it went way back, whether you're talking about pulp and paper, aluminum smeltering, whether you're talking about forestry. But those were grounded in principles. Whereas today, I don't see them, the, the protests really grounded in any truth, any history, or any principles. It's just, I don't like what's going on, therefore, we, we, I, I got a blockade society. And I, I don't care if you're Aboriginal or not. I mean, essentially, we're in this all together. We are. And British Columbia, you've been doing a great job at environmental issues for the better part of 18 years. At least acknowledge that before you start to go down and shut down highways or, or start to shut down your own quality of life. If, if it is actually British Columbia's doing this. Right. Because I've seen for the better part of uh, 15 years, some of these actors that come up here, you know, you're not even from British Columbia, not even a Canadian. Why don't you go back to your own country and protest your own country? Or better yet, go to a country that has actually got emissions going through the roof and protest there. Protest China. Protest Russia. Protest India. Protest the countries that really need to bring their emissions down. I agree. And, I, you know, when it comes to the motives, you know, you touched on publicity, right? Celebrities coming to BC to, to protest. It's probably good for the brand. Right, they they were seen as taking action, right, on protecting the the natural world, but losing sight of like, you know, what are the what are the what are the what's the rationale behind this? I look at a lot of the, I guess, organized protests in British Columbia, my immediate surroundings, as fueled by two things: one being almost like a lack of purpose, and if you can get behind an argument that just seems to, you know be blanketed with the, it's right, it's just. But, but secondly, there's a lot of forces, and you touched on inflation a handful of times, that are unsettling people. And I think there's a lot of anger and maybe confusion as to why, right? The, um, the monopoly, monopoly board's a little bit rigged, isn't it, right? If, if you're an owner of assets, inflation is serving you greatly, right? And, and that's been the game for the last 20 years. If you didn't get in on that game, Housing, these things are just becoming increasingly inaffordable and your likelihood of ever realizing those personal goals are getting further and further away. And so, you know, you can wake up one day, look at that monopoly board and say, what, what happened here? How did I end up so far behind? I thought I did everything right, but this life that I dreamed of is further and further out of reach. And this feels anger in people, right? And it's just that they feel upset because they don't know, but then they don't know where to point the finger and how to correct course. And so we start looking for ways and looking for things to point the finger at, right? I, I see it all as related, Ellis. Like I, I don't see it as, as completely separate issues, right? We've got a massive explosions of civil unrest, north and south of the border, but up here as well, you know? And, and I think the population's continuing to feel a bit disenfranchised, increased civil divides and a lack of clarity on why. And so you look for an enemy in those scenarios, right? And I feel like there's an underlying thread there that fuels a lot of this. Do you, do you think I'm on the money or am I, have I lost the plot? Uh, yeah, I, I believe in the same thing. <clears throat> uh, when, when I was, to be clear, I opposed resource development too in 2003. I opposed forestry, mining, uh, liquid natural gas. And, and then I started to realize, you know, that everything I believed wasn't actually true. And so, 
I, I, I made a commitment to my council. I said, look, I'll support resource development, LNG for it. I'll support all of it, but under two conditions, it's got to be done with the highest environmental standards possible. And it's also got to deliver prosperity that people truly need it. I mean, the, the impoverished, which we did. Uh, you come to Kitimat, we don't talk about welfare, poverty. We don't talk about that because it just doesn't exist for the people that truly want to build their lives. Like if you really want to build your life in Kitimat, and I, I, I get it, the construction, it's going to be away for a while, but uh, there, there's two things that I realized I had to understand if I wanted to make a change in our region. I had to understand the economy, which is really hard to do, by the way. It's kind of an abstract, like it's, it's like nailing gel to the wall. What is an economy? How do you develop? How do you nurture it? And the other thing I researched heavily was governance. And I thought the two were linked, not government manipulating or actually developing, but government understanding that they're one of the components to making sure there's a strong economy in place. Whether we're talking about uh, uh, regulations, legislation, uh, or even welcoming the idea of investment, uh, some type of invest, uh, incentive. So I understood all that. Uh, the only piece I didn't understand was politics. In 2017, when I got in the BC legislature, that's when I truly looked at the full breadth of politics and what it really meant in terms of the future of places like British Columbia. Uh, so the, the, the anger that people are feeling, you know, I, I got to tell them, this is what you voted for. Like government, th there are mechanisms for government to actually address what's happening out there right now. Yeah, some of them are long-term initiatives, like say a long-term energy policy, but essentially, you know, if, if governments were promising this green future and you know, all these solar panels and wind, and wind towers, and you bought into that thinking that it was not gonna affect you, well, you got a good taste of politics. And the only thing that's going to dig us out of that is good governance. Uh, if British Columbians, at the very least, uh, the medium term and long term, you want to address this, you're going to have to address it on behalf of your kids and your grandkids. That's what you're going to have to do. Because I think if, if, if we changed where we're heading here in BC, it's probably going to take us a good five to 10 years just to stop what we're currently seeing right now and try to turn it around uh, in terms of some of the things like, say, inflation, um, energy crisis. It's going to take some time because British Columbia's bought into this idea, you know, that we can shut down oil and gas, we can shut down forestry, shut down mining, shut down everything, and everything will be fine. Well, Europe is proving that theory wrong. So, yeah, they are. And, you know, I, I'm curious, therefore, about where do we where do we begin to plant the seeds? Because you could look at Canada and say with a relatively small population relative to its size, we should or could more or less have the world by the balls, forgive my language, but you know, it's, it's a country that's abundant in energy, in clean water, in food, and the inputs required to produce more food, including fertilizer, a plethora of natural resources, and we operate with the highest environmental standard in the world. And it's easy to say, not in my backyard, but it's important to address that that is what you're saying. When you want to shut down extraction and these industries here in Canada, it's not like we don't need the stuff. 
we still need this stuff. It's just going to come from somewhere else with probably a massively decreased environmental standard. So where do we begin planting the seeds? Is it like early in the education system? How do you begin to, in, to teach people and inform people, I suppose, about the opportunities that we have and what, what setting a global example could mean as Canadians and British Columbians? That's a great question, man. I'm not really sure of the answer, but I can tell you, uh, in 2004, uh, for my small community, um, there was tremendous opposition to forestry mining LNG uh, exports. And you know what? At the very least, you should start with strong, consistent leadership. And the things I started understanding in terms of the economy, First Nations issues, uh, LNG export industry, uh, I understood uh, boiling it down into some really simple objectives and goals that I could communicate to my people. Well, I took a lot of errors for that. I took a lot of criticism. Uh, in, in fact, it got to a point where my community uh, was divided by external forces where violence was a reality, a potential reality. But that's the difference between politics and leadership. Never changed my perspective. I never changed my, my line of thinking. It was just saying, look, I understand you think that, uh, you know, that, that somehow this is a catastrophe, but here's the facts. And slowly, people started to think, well, maybe we should listen to them. Maybe we should listen to counsel. And so we, we kept coming back with facts. We kept coming back with experts. And by the end of it, you know, the last agreement that we actually voted on in my band, it was 92% in favor. Uh, this is a really tough exercise to get British Columbia to understand that, you know what, you've been fed a false line. You've been fed a false line. And here's the truth. But let's face it, you know, the truth doesn't sell headlines, doesn't sell newspapers. You know, that, that's why the environmental activists, including some Canadian scientists, by the way, come up with this ridiculous headline, like saying, you know, oh, we're going to blow up BC. Then they come up with this article that kind of backs up their narrative that we should shut down forestry, mining, LNG. Well, it takes, you know, the, the, the media to plaster that in the front page, right? And everybody gets excited. Everybody gets emotional. Mm -hmm. But then the truth comes out. And that's discounted. Well, the truth comes out on page seven of that publication. And nobody, nobody cares. This is a real, in the age of communication, especially social media, this is a really hard issue to tackle for British Columbians because it's easier to believe the fantastic than mm -hmm. to believe the truth in terms of what British Columbia has been doing for the better part of 20 years now. It's, it's really hard to believe the truth. Nobody wants to give you an example. Uh, First Nations issues across uh, Canada has been called Canada shame. 80% unemployment, high rates of suicide, incarceration, kids going into government care. Well, here in Kitimat, we turned that around to the point where in my community, there's no real such thing as a house party anymore. Whereas before we used to be doused in alcohol on weekends. Hmm. How come that's not a front page story? Hmm. That's not sensationalized. Whereas Canada and BC did not come in and fix our social issues. It was us as leaders 
that only said, you know what, we got to build a strong economy so they can get a job. Then they can start looking after their family, look after themselves and build their lives because it doesn't sell papers. That's why. Yeah. And this is you see with the energy issue, the mining issue, the forestry issue. It's all based on emotion and all the politics and the environmental activists that really truly don't believe in the environment at all are just stirring that, that basic response from British Columbians because British Columbians do want to do the right thing. But the whole issue here for me is, okay, you want to do the right thing? Then based on facts at least and some truth. It's going to be a tough one to, to turn this one around. But I've done it before. Yeah, no kidding. Your money's where your mouth is. Now, now how, how, do you, how do you incentivize the next generation of, as you said, strong, consistent leadership to enter politics. It's it's not a it's not a very attractive sell. If I'm being honest, like <laughs> why on earth would I want to go? To, I can't think of a good reason. Like you know, it's a thankless job. You're you're guaranteed to be a target. Um, and I I I would love to have an answer to that question. But how do you incentivize the the high performing, ambitious? up-and-comers to consider public office for the right reasons. Well, that's the difference between uh, doing this job to be a leader or a politician. There, there is some, there's some politicians out there that are in it for themselves. They'll say whatever that you want to hear. Um, they'll say one thing here in BC to stand with you. Then they'll go back to Ottawa and say the opposite. Uh, very slimy. Um, the, 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 that's the best definition of a politician, you know, that you've seen in, in, in satire, but it, but it, it exists. But it, I've, I've had this issue in my own community where we could see some really smart people in our community moving up, really smart, educated, and very principled in terms of their values. And you tell them, okay, you should run for office. You should run for council. You should help us out. Then they find out, number one, the pay sucks. It's not great pay, especially when you're going out in the, the, the real world here in Kitimat and you can make anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $50,000 more, even if you didn't finish high school. Mm. And number two, they don't like, and even native politics, by the way this happens, you see the lateral violence and the threats of physical violence. And so this discourages uh, a lot of people from saying, no, I don't want, why would I do something like that? The pay sucks and, you know, the acts of violence. In fact, as an MLA, uh, I got threatened a few times. Uh, I even got uh, a death threat. So when in BC over the last couple of years, you know, it was it was somehow shocking that these politicians were exposed to threats. And I was thinking, wait a minute. As a, as a First Nation leader, that just came with a job. Hmm. Why are you guys surprised with this? I, I thought everybody understood. Once you get in the public limelight, you know you're putting yourself out there for this type of uh, this type of activity, mm. because you know I've, I've faced it all the time, and it's 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 really hard when when young people see that that type of behavior to say yeah I want to be doing what that guy does because I see people yelling at him, calling him down, calling him a sellout, calling him an apple calling them a colonialist. Uh, yeah, it, it, I don't want that life. And the worst part of this 
is for the past 18 years, I told my direct family and my, 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 my parents and their family, stay out of this. You're going to see a lot of abuse. You're going to see a lot of mean calling. And so the hardest part for this is watching my family sit helplessly, angry, mad, sad, seeing people talk to me like this and treat me like this. And I told them, stay quiet. Don't respond. Don't fight. This is my job. So this, this, is, this is the hardest part for me to watch is my family suffering because they, they it, 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 you know, it affects me. Of course it affects me. Mm-hmm. But I, you, you stay grounded in the goals and the objectives that you, you developed over the past 10, 15 years, and you stick to it regardless of what's going on. But it's really hard to find somebody that, that has the conviction and the courage to stand up for what they believe in and I, I don't pull any punches in terms of uh, what happens when you stand up for principled objectives. I mean, people are ruthless. And I'm talking about Aboriginals as well. I mean, all that talk about respect and all that kind of stuff. Some of the worst uh, name calling and some of the worst insults that I've gotten over my lifetime actually came from Aboriginals. And I'm an Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. So they, they, across the board, I don't know uh, how to encourage people to get into this type of life. I think it takes a certain kind of person. Um, I don't believe in this idea that you need thick skin. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in this, this world that says, yeah, I can handle people calling me derogatory names and insulting me and insulting my background, insulting us. Nobody, nobody likes that. Mm-hmm. It's nature not to like that. So it's, I don't, I, I've always encouraged young people on a way to kind of get started in this life. But uh, yeah, nobody wants to put up with kind of abuse on an individual level. No, no, absolutely not. Um, so then what I would ask you, Alistair, what are, what have some of the biggest influences in your life been, whether that's mentors, books that you read, that you recommend, you know, what help, what has helped craft your thought processes and how you analyze and interpret the world. I, I actually started out uh, in 2003. I, I read the, my bank house's archives and I was reading technical reports. I was reading the history of our, our native people. I was reading uh, political articles, government articles. I was reading it, everything I could put my hands on. And so I read a number of different opinions from a lot of different sources. And basically, uh, at, at the end of 2004, I, I got a good understanding of what truly happened to First Nations people in Canada. And when I was sitting in the archives, I was sitting there for like two, three weeks reading on my own. And at the end of it, when I, when I put it all together in my head, you know, I, I broke down. And I just cried. I couldn't believe it. I mean, now I understood why First Nations were in the situation they found themselves in. So for the next three days, I thought about revenge. I thought, okay, BC wants forestry. I'm going to kill it. They want mining. I'm going to kill it. They want energy. I'm going to kill it. I know ways, you know, to obstruct all this stuff. And I'm going to make people pay. 
I'm going to make government pay for all this stuff. So I was in my own world for a couple of weeks thinking about that. Then after a while, I thought, you know what? What's the point? What's the point of revenge? Not only am I going to stop the progress of our region, but I'm going to stop everybody as an individual of BC, you know, from building their own lives. Why do I want to add that negativity? So in terms of reading, I've always made it a point to try to read uh, all the different opinions from all different kinds of angles to kind of get a, not only to get an understanding where people are coming from, but to try to get at some kernel of truth, you know, that, that might kind of direct my thinking. Uh, so in terms of reading, by the way, <laughs> this political work has, has killed my passion for two things. Number one, reading. <laughs> and two, traveling. Okay. So I, I rarely read. You know, the only reports I read now are, are basically reports on um, energy and uh, governance. So I, I don't read fiction anymore. I, I still don't like traveling. So it's uh, I'll I'll read a lot of stuff that really speaks to uh, how do we how do we build a big better province better country. How do we build better communities? That's what I really look at. Okay. Any any places I could point my viewers, Alice, right now, if they want to learn more about your initiatives, learn more about initiatives that you feel are important, uh, any websites, resources that we should point people to? No, but uh, Google's a huge world, huge. And in this age of information, there doesn't seem to be any uh, one true source of who's actually telling the truth. But there are publications. I, I follow uh, Forbes. Um, I, I follow some of the financial analysts uh, on Twitter. And I also follow uh, all the, the, the major newspapers and journalists that are covering some of the issues in places like Germany. Mm. Uh, that, I mean, try get insight, not only at, at the you know, at the high level in terms of what they're trying to trying to resolve over there, but also at the community level, the individual level in terms of what they're going through. And so I'm following the geopolitics very closely nowadays and trying to relate that to where BC is heading and trying to, you know, trying to, you know, head that off at the pass. I mean, we're going down that road for sure in terms of energy independence, but uh, I don't think people have truly realized how far this can go mm -hmm. in terms of groceries going up, in terms of goods and services going up, uh, not to mention fuel prices. So yeah, follow the, the official journalists uh, for your facts. And then you can follow all the opinions and narratives around that and try build a narrative you know, that, that's developed by you individual because if you're looking for somebody to, to kind of show you the way without doing your own research you might get misled and i yeah. i've i'm a victim of that as well over the years so it's really hard to do in this age of social media it is hard to do you know what i get a lot of flack from buddies of mine just because i i make it a point and this has become i don't know you could say my brand right my show is but I make a point to entertain both sides of, of debate. And 
we've become very sensitive. Um, maybe recently, maybe I've just started to notice it recently, but sensitive to opposition and opposing points of view and opinions to the point where often, you know, as soon as we hear a statement that triggers some conflict, it's like we just see red, you know, and, and completely throw the block up or go on the offense, the offense. And um, it's gotten me in some fiery debates with like very close friends of mine, because, you know, I, I try to, I don't know, I, I think we're just lacking a bit of empathy, a bit of uh, a bit of um, compassion for the fact that everybody's going to see and experience the world differently based on their personal history, you know, and that's how you interpret things. And reality is just whatever you decide it is in your brain. Um, however, uh, look, Ellis, I really appreciate your time. It was great chatting with you and, and thanks for coming on the show and getting in front of my audience. I do appreciate it. Okay. Good to talk to you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.